Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is neuroscientist, professor of anatomy, musician and poet Ian Givens. Ian, welcome. Hello, it's good to be here. I'm sure I could have added a few more uh, labels there as well. A few more what, sorry? A few more titles as well. Titles? No, that's about right. <laughs> now, I like to usually open the show with a little bit of reading. I'd love to open today's show with a poem. Could you just read us one from the book? Okay, yep. How about I read The Science of Shark Fishing? Wonderful. Okay, this, um, this poem was came about from a photograph that was in the Adelaide newspaper, the advertiser of... Uh, shark that had been caught on a local beach and there was all the usual hysteria about um, sharks patrolling the beaches and danger to the to the local swimmers and whether the fishermen should have been catching sharks here at all. And it was a beautiful picture of a beautiful shark and I thought, hmm, what's the shark think about all this? So this is the science of shark fishing. There's not much you can do with a hook through your jaw apart from anything else. You cannot escape that pervading taste of metal, that disorienting, somehow worrying sensation of stainless steel, mixed almost certainly and against all hope with your very own pulsating hemoglobin. It's difficult to describe your disbelief and indecision. The pressure is unrelenting, even in those moments when you convince yourself to relax to let yourself drift forward a body length or two, slip backwards a metre or two, while refracted ripple skies continue to be drawn just that much closer to your touch. In the end, weariness utterly overwhelms you. Surrounded by more oxygen than you ever have required, you find yourself aching for one more breath of the sea. You wish, perhaps, that evolution had provided you the wherewithal not only to bite, to maul and harangue, but simply, decisively, to get up and run away. Mm. Now, was that one inspired by some actual shark fishing? Yeah, it was... It was um, there was actually a story in the, an advertiser about these... Um, the, the, I think it was a bronze whaler um, that was... Um, apparently been caught by fishermen off a local beach and just left to die on the beach. But a part of our days of um, my days as a zoologist, we used to study sharks a bit, and I used to go scuba diving a lot. And I never actually saw sharks then. I still go surfing, and in 40 odd years of surfing, I've only knowingly been in the water with sharks once or twice, but they're there all the time. Mm. I really imagine listening to that, and, and you've set that one to music too. I'll ask you about that in a minute. But um, I imagine listening to that one that if we could get inside a shark's head, that it would be quite an accurate um, representation of what might be going on in there. Um, only up to a point. This is the thing about thinking about the points of views of um, of other creatures, other other animals. I mean, sharks don't have very much of a brain, <laughs> and it's, I'm, it's not clear they think about anything very much. I mean, they don't have all the parts of the brain that we that um, we have for 
higher function, they don't. So they're largely working on um, reflexes, a relatively limited range of behaviours. So I suspect the shark doesn't think anything very much about it, but um, it's nice to consider if we're in that situation, how do we deal with it? Yes, and I guess there's, there's a lot of anthropomorphism in the book as well, which I'll, I'll talk to you about as well um, later on. But with this particular poem, I wonder whether um, there isn't a little bit of a relevance to human life as well. Oh, yes, of course. So the I suppose the way of generalising the point of view is um, what, what options do you have when things get really, really rough? And... Here's an animal on the on the point of death, and you can't escape death. It's going to get you sooner or later. Um, what what would you do about it if you actually had a choice? Um, if we were, had a different sort of biology, would we consider different parts of the of the world around us dangerous or not? I mean, for a shark, um, the air, something we take absolutely for granted, um, is lethal. Mm. For us, it's absolutely yes. essential. <laughs> And even in, in a, you know, maybe I'm stretching it too far, but uh, even in a sense of war sometimes, you know, you think cornered, about to be killed, you know, it's, it's just a, you almost wonder whether we couldn't change the um, the actual story. Yeah, I, I suppose. I hadn't thought about that from that, that point of view. Um, yeah, I mean, war is a terrible thing, and I've, I've never written about that explicitly because I don't have the experience, obviously. Um but I also don't have any, any friends or, or relatives alive at the moment anyway who are involved with war. So it's something I, I really haven't written about at all. It's not mm-hmm. normally, although it's terrible and it's all around us, especially today. Um, and it's not something I've, I've considered writing about very much. Sure. Now, this one you did actually set to music. Um, yeah. You've got it in the CD that comes with the book. Um, how did you choose which poems to, to set and which not? And did you do that as part of the project or were they set separately and then pulled together? Uh, good question. Um, mostly I write the poems and then and I write the music and as separate things. And then every now and then I think... Ah, those words will go with that music, or vice versa. Sometimes I think oh, I'd be nice to have some words for that music. And then I hunt around and find ones where the the tone of the music matches or complements, or sometimes contrasts with the tone of the of the language. And then it's a matter of seeing how the verse structure fits with the underlying structure of the music, and importantly, the um, the rhythm of the words. Pitching, uh, matching the, the rhythm of the music. So a lot of the music, like the shark fishing one, for example, I, I use odd time um, meters. So shark fishing, I think, is in 5-4 time. I often use, do things in 5 or 7. These odd, um, slightly asymmetric time signatures, and they often, as it turns out, match the, the rhythms of the, of the words. Although I don't read them strictly in time to the music, like you would say a rap song or something like that. But when I read them with the music, I try and get the the, the, the sounds of the words, the rhythms of the words to, to match or complement or sometimes go across the, the rhythms of the music. And so after initial reading, I actually do a lot of fiddling on the, um, on the, on the files on the, on the computer to, ma- to shift syllables, shift words, so they, they match the, the, bits, the beats of the music. 
And then, interestingly, after I've done that, and I was happy with the arrangement, then the way I read the, the poems, like just then reading the shark fishing one, um, I hear the music in the head. I, 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 I haven't done it, mm. I, rem- I remember it. <laughs> I was wondering if you were hearing that music as well. I certainly was. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, had, I had the music in my head while I was while I was reading it. At least, at least the 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 rhythm of the words as they are set to the music it changes the way I read the poems. So a number of these poems have been published in other venues. How did the collection as a whole come about? Uh, the collection as a whole came about as an entry for the Friendly Street Poets Single Poets Competition, and which is a competition Friendly Street Poets here in Adelaide has been running for a, a long time. Um, and it's the, the prize is a, is, a, is a publication by Wonderful Press. And it's held every two years. And I applied, entered the um, previous cycle, and I was one of the, I suppose, shortlist. I think I, I didn't, didn't win, needless to say, but the, um, the judge at the time um, commented to me that, yeah, it was, it was one of the ones which almost made it. So that was a big um, boost to my writing. I actually hadn't been publishing stuff for, for very long at that time. And... So I went back and thought, oh, well, I can, I can make a better collection, aim for the next next time. And so I, I decided to really, really think what makes a, a decent collection and pull together a slightly more thematic structure. And in the meantime, I've written a lot of new stuff, which went in there. And in the, also in the meantime, quite a few pieces have been published um, elsewhere, in various journals and whatever, and I thought, well, let other people decide what are the good ones. <laughs> so first of all, I intend to get all the ones that have been published or have been performed and people liked, uh, and put up the collection from there. Sure, you have a mandate now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then when I thought of the title, I thought that that also was a, was a criterion for for how well things fit that sort of general theme of of biology. Mm. That, that sort of there's a selection criterion as well. And then sequencing the poems, um, was, I really enjoyed doing that. And there's a, there's a strict page limit, and um, that, that that really helped um, put things together. And then in sequencing, I actually rewrote some of the poems a bit to when, when I saw the, 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 the sequence that came together. So sometimes accidental re- repetitions of phrases or ideas, I didn't like that. And, we <laughs> wrote some things to to avoid sort of mindless repetition, accidental repetition. Sure. Yep. So there's a definite link here between your day job or jobs and your poetry. Talk to me a little bit about the relationship between science and poetry for you. Yeah, it's very interesting. That I've always been interested in in writing, writing, and and I read a lot of non-science work um, when I was a student undergraduate student back in Melbourne in the 1970s. I was doing zoology and at the same time I was part of uh, Melbourne University um, writers workshop that was run out of the English department then. Poetry was mostly focused on poetry and a bit of performance um, and back in those days I co-edited poetry magazines with other people in the group and did a bit of performance stuff around town. And then I sort of stopped doing it. I don't know why, because lost interest, I suppose. 
And then I started writing again about 10 years ago, I suppose, and started being out a bit more about five, maybe five, six, maybe seven years ago now. But in the meantime, I, I read uh, fiction a lot. I, I hadn't read poetry very much, and I still don't read poetry all that much, but um, I read a lot of a lot of fiction. And the the creative life, if you like, is is a central um, complement to to doing science. Um, over the last few years, I've been working reasonably closely with uh, artists in a few different genres for either our own creative projects or in presenting science um, to the to the public in, a, in the context of creative arts. And it's become clear to me that the, the process of creativity, of the way that you explore the world, either as a scientist or as a, a creative artist, is essentially the same. And what's different is the, um, is the way you use the information, I think. Mm. And maybe the burden of proof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose. But, but it's actually, um, I suppose... People say oh, it's amazing you do this and do that, but um, lots of lots of scientists uh, are creative in some sort of way, and mm. it's it's very common at a at a scientific conference, especially the smaller ones, that you know the second last night of the of the conference and everybody's in the bar or something like that, and people realise that there's enough there's enough people who can play music, for example, to, to put together a jam band. And if there's a piano around and someone brings a guitar and someone else happens to have with them their, their flute or their whistle or their saxophone or violin or something like that, and it's really common for that to happen. Um, so lots, lots of scientists and musicians. Um, not so many write, but quite a lot do um, you know, photography or drawing or something mm. like that. And, and, and quite a lot of scientists also have a hobby interest in the humanities. I mean, they might be interested in some aspect of archaeology or some particular history or they might be a fan of, of some particular writer or, or style of, 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 um, of art or something like that. Mm. And I suppose there's something inherently creative in the notion of a hypothesis. I mean, you have to begin almost with nothing. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think there's two aspects to the to the creativity. One is, is first of all, that I think the thing which scientists and artists Share almost perfectly is the the drive to understand the world um, first, and second, which is something much harder to understand, is some sort of sense that you need to tell everybody about what you found, um, and it's something I, I find really mysterious. So I don't understand how the human psychology works like that, but. I mean, artists are artists not because, not just because they want to explore the world and be creative, but all because they want, they've got something in them that says, well, I've got to show people, I've got to tell people what I've found, what I've made. And scientists, it's the same. You go out and explore the world, and then you have to publish it. You have to have it out there. And there's a sort of famous throwaway lines which says, if it's not published, it doesn't exist. Mm. So um, that, that, then that sort of notion of um, putting yourself out there... Um, Taking risks with what you've, with your own personal view of the world, and putting it out there for other people to judge is perhaps the, the, the strongest link between scientists and, and artists. Um, yeah. And how you, how you start off is maybe different, although the initial just pure inquisitiveness, I think, is, is the main driver. 
Um, but in the, in the methods you get there are, are different. And um, hypothesis-driven research is is really important um, in modern science. But it's not the only way you do it, though. I mean, you just sometimes you do stuff because you have a hunch, and which I suppose might be a hypothesis when it's formalised. But you just think, oh, this looks pretty good. Let's have a go. <laughs> it's funny, I don't think it's any different to an artist thinking, oh, there's a, there's a pretty good area. I want to try painting that or. Well, there's a strange phrase. Maybe that's the start of a poem. Uh, I don't think there's much difference. Yeah. So on that note, can can you read us heart dissection? I know it's a long one, but um, I think it, it goes right to, right to the heart, if you will, of the matter that we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, okay. I'll just look through and find that. As I'm finding it, I can just... Uh, 31. Oh, good, thank you. Yeah, this was um, written as sort of an allergy initially, to one of my um, colleagues who worked in the department here, Department of Anatomy for Embassy, for, um, from its outset when, when, the, when the School of Medicine here was started in the early 70s. But he also did his PhD in the same department as me in zoology over in Melbourne. Um, and he was a heart expert and taught cardiovascular system for years and years and years, as much loved by the students. But then he had a terrible, massive heart attack and, and died um, as a consequence of it. So the, the heart dissection is for BJG, that's, that's my colleague. And each of the sections here um, is related to some aspect of the physiology of the heart and um, the circulation, but also tied to the environment here at Flinders and, and something, things reflecting on the life of some of the interests of, of my colleague. So there's a lot in this, and I read this at his, at a, at the, I wrote it especially for the sort of wake that we had here at work for him. So I won't explain it as I go through, if you can ask questions after. <laughs> okay, so this is heart dissection. One, cardiac output. Circularity, at least a working definition, approximating squared radii, right angles cubed, beveled off, transformed to the flows, pulsing like the seasons, like the muscles of seabirds migrating the length of the earth. Meanwhile, our unreefed, unerased futures gather round architectural drawings, replete with promises of a new roof over our heads, a view away from fire-scarred hills towards the coastal verge, towards each change in pressure, each not-quite-timely reminder that enlivens our inexplicably recurrent past. Two, conducting system. Through reciprocating harmonic series, I gladly give to you bundles of hopeful predilection, woven cords of neighbourliness, rows of intercalated desire, the trigger-happy rush of escape, bands of enthusiastic light and dark, a perfect cup of tea, you're waiting next of kin. Septum. On the other side, there is a tangible sense of barely solid air. On the other side, the observable spectrum shifts to markedly longer wavelengths. On the other side, expectation matches the potential for renewal. On the other side, strange attractors let loose magnificent, unrehearsed adventure. Four. Venus return. 
We travelled to Jupiter, circled Galileo's moons, Io and Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, swirling, roiling like the mighty red spot, 3,000 million feet below. We navigated vast oceans, tacked from meridian to meridian, boldly indifferent to seductive doldrums or looming sub-equatorial storms, we snared luscious, fat-lipped coral trout. We crossed the great sandy desert, the Gobi, the Sahara, dug for water, for evidence, a lasting trace, for ancestors, lobe-thinned, ephemeral, and beside them settled under arid, counterpainted skies. Now we relax around campfires, embers cool, ironwood smoking, ghosts, exchanging natural histories as seas fall calm and planets sink beneath far-off indigo mountains. Can we delineate the conditions that bring us here? Can we hope to calibrate our coordinates, to specify the sum of our explorations, the grand total of our arrivals, our departures? Behind us, again, the subtle force to move on, just a faint just a gentle nudge in the back. So we do, so we do, until once more beyond our zenith we track the tumbling moons of Jupiter. So there's, um, there's quite a few metaphors working together in that poem, aren't there? Yeah, there's a lot. Um, so the, the, first, the overriding metaphors are, are based on the, on the structure of the heart, the, um, the microscopic structure of the heart, it, there's all sorts of allusions to that. So um, in part two, the conducting system, the reciprocating harmonic series, that's the, the way the heartbeats can be modelled. Um, woven chords of neighbourliness, rows of integrated desire, trigger-happy rush of escape, enthusiastic light and dark. That's all the microscopic structure of the heart cells themselves, which are joined together by things called integrated discs. Um, there's the, the conducting tissue, which coordinates the heartbeat, it's part of the, um, they're called cords, and um, if you look down the microscope, the muscle cells themselves have alternating bands of light and dark which relate to their, to their proteins which make them work, so there's lots of stuff like that. There's a feeling mm -hmm. of um, exploration and, and um, going in, the, the sea's important part of that. Um, the sea's not in my poems because I spend a lot of time there, but my colleague um, did a lot of sailing, was was a very keen fisherman, and as part of our shared zoology background, um, we, we, we knew about the, the evolution of fish, um, we knew about, know about how the um, fish-like creatures evolved into land-dwelling creatures. Um, so that's also another part of the, um, the, the sort of underlying metaphors. Mm. And then, um, I'm intrigued by astronomy. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I think if I had been on turning side, astronomy would have been pretty good. And the um, the notion of space travel is always something pretty appealing to everybody, I think. Do you think as well, though, this idea of returning to, almost returning to the base elements, um, there's almost a, an astronomical feel about that, that how we comprehend death if we're not religious? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I'm not a religious person at all. Um, but I, I, I mean... I'm interested in in notions of religiosity, I suppose. Um, I got interested in that through 
studying the history of, uh, of anatomy and trying to understand how people came to want to come to explore the, the body in more detail in, in medieval Renaissance times. And through that, I've been interested in the relationship between you know, church and science and so I started day life in, in those times. Um, and I suppose that the notion of eternal life or reincarnation, uh, life after death, all those sorts of ideas, which in a literal sense I, I don't believe at all. It's, I don't know. <laughs> it's just not way my brain works. I don't have any need to, 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 um, to have that sort of belief. But on the other hand, from a science point of view, there's no doubt that um, that all our elements, the molecules which we made, um, recycle around and around and around. They all originally came from the sun and from the and from the elements which made the, the, the sun, the solar system, the galaxy, everything else. So you, you can't, as a scientist, you can't escape that sort of mm. sense of eternity and recycling. Um, the other the other thing too is it's just on a more pragmatic point of view, is that People have done these amazing calculations, like how many times the a single molecule of oxygen, for example, has been recycled through different people's lungs. And you can do the calculations and be pretty sure that some of the air that you're going to breathe sometime while you're alive would have been breathed by someone famous like 2,000 years ago, Jesus or Caesar or... That's right. Now look, we're um, we're running out of time, but um, I, I did want to just briefly talk to you about the anthropomorphism mm -hmm. because it's not just the animals, although there's there's plenty of that. But paintings talk, the earth talks, dead characters talk. Um, just talk to me briefly about giving words to the wordless. Yeah, it's a nice idea. I've thought of it quite like that. Words to the wordless. Um, the one of my fun, I don't have too much in the way of a theoretical basis for what I write, but one of the things that does come out of the neuroscience understanding of how the brain works is that there's a big disconnect between um, the language that we do have and the things that language doesn't work for. And it's very hard to, dis to, to put feelings into words. It's very hard to, to describe how you, your body works um, in, in words. And one of the reasons for that is that the, the parts of the brain involved in moving your hands, doing fine manipulative skills, for example, or areas the brain responsible for emotion, aren't linked through to the language standards in a, in a particularly direct way. And more and more people think that's part of the reason why it's so hard to describe how to do things, for example, or how, how, how you feel. So I have the underlying notion that language doesn't work very well a lot of the time. So then I was thinking, you know, I suppose you put it in the context, well, what about all of the, the people who who don't, have lost, you can't communicate with because they're dead or they're not there or they don't have the words, they don't have the, the opportunity to speak? I suppose that's an underlying um, idea in the back of my mind all the time. And then as we talked about with the, um, with the shark fishing, it, it's impossible to know what another animal thinks. It's hard enough thinking, understanding what another human thinks. Uh, we're pretty good at it a lot of the time. But to imagine what it must feel like to be a bird or a bat or a fish 
or a prehistoric person trapped in a bog or indigenous person facing up to um, invading settlers or colonists for the first time. It's impossible to, 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 to imagine what that must be like. However, I suppose you can get glimpses of from the, from the behaviour, from the, from the environment, of the sorts of things that, if it were you, how would you imagine? How, how would you feel under those circumstances? So, in a way, imagining the point of view from, a, from an animal is really a way of putting yourself in another situation and trying to find the words to explain what it feels like, I suppose. And then when we have those words, does it... I mean, I guess this is the power of poetry, really, but once we have those words, it kind of opens us up a little bit more, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think I mean, people often say, you know, what's the difference between poetry and, and say, you know, song lyrics or, or prose or something like that? And I think more often than not, poetry, because of its the, the highly compressed form, because of the, the license you have in poetry to really stretch the meanings of words, the structure of language, force it to its, um, to its limits, you can try and, and represent the, the dignities of, the, of language in a way that becomes too hard in a book or too silly sometimes in a song. So um, I like the other way of looking at the anthropomorphism um, point of view, the question you raised just before. A lot of my, I hadn't noticed it particularly until I thought it was up to A lot of my poems are in first person, so I actually try and invent these these voices. I, mean, I suppose that's the creative part of the creative process I like doing. Just to invent a new voice and try and try and be someone else just for twenty lines. <laughs> mm. Now look, that's I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Um, but just before we end, um, Ian, can you just tell us your website so people can go and find out more about you? Yeah, the, the website is www.teengibbons.com That's Ian Gibbons, all one word, I-A-N-G-I-B-D-I-N-S.com.au And I highly recommend it. There's music and uh, and words and all sorts of uh, fantastic samples there as well. Oh, good on you. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Thanks so much for joining us today, and please join us next month for another another episode of the Compulsive Reader Talks.